Pentecost Day was when Jesus Christ announced the arrival of his kingdom and came into my house, the strong man's house, and bound me and began to prove that he had authority and power over the demons, disease, and even death. My fifth darkest day was when Jesus Christ died on the cross and by his atonement actually purchased his destruction of me and my works. My sixth darkest day was when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, proving that God accepted his sacrifice and that he had indeed conquered death. My seventh darkest day came 40 days later when Jesus Christ ascended on high to a throne of glory, having led a host of captives captive. And from that throne, he began to rule the world and irresistibly advance his kingdom. And my darkest of all days, the eighth yet to come. And it is hastening, and the thought of it fills me with an ever-increasing dread and rage. The day Jesus Christ returns to earth and destroys me with the brightness of His appearing and the mere word of His mouth and casts me headlong into the eternal, never-ending lake of fire which He prepared for me and all my fellow demons. Those are and will be the darkest days of my existence. That's what Satan would have to admit were he forced to tell the truth. Well, this morning, we will be looking at the fourth darkest day of Satan's existence. The day Jesus Christ announced the arrival of his kingdom and actually went into the strong man's house, bound him, and began to plunder his goods. The day Jesus Christ began to demonstrate his absolute sovereignty over all creation. The day when, in essence, he said, Warning, demons and disease, beware. The king has arrived. Just a comment about the bulletin. If you uh, would take a look, you will notice that cryptically we have a subtitle under Warning Demons and Disease Beware. You have to look very carefully. You almost have to hold it at a certain angle and let the light shine on those uh, four black words. They say, the king has arrived. I'm only kidding about that being done on purpose. But that is... <laughs> now that we can laugh about uh, our human frailties uh, and glitches, that subtitle is critical to this message. Warning. Demons and disease beware... The king has arrived. That is what Mark chapter 1 to its end, and for that matter, the rest of the gospel is really about. So, let me ask you uh, to notice with me again this first chapter which uh, Derek read for us. Let's look at Mark's account 
of that day. We uh, return to his fast-paced docudrama, as I called it last week, of the good news concerning Jesus Christ. Last week, you remember, we saw John the Baptist preparing the way for Christ by preaching repentance from sin and faith in the coming Savior. And we saw him requiring of his true converts a public baptism symbolizing a break with sin. We also saw Jesus being prepared for his public ministry by humbly and symbolically identifying with those he came to ransom. That would be us. He identified with us in his baptism. Though he was sinless and had no sins to be washed away, he was going to be taking on himself the sins of the world, the sins of the likes of us gathered here today. And he identified with us from the very outset of his ministry. And we witnessed last week Jesus winning an early strategic victory over Satan while being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Could I just suggest to you that Jesus spent one day for each of the 40 years that Israel wandered in its wilderness. And Jesus, who is greater than Moses was planning to lead the true Israel into the true promised land, but in order to do so, he had to succeed where the first Adam failed. He had to be sinless in order to successfully redeem those whom he represented. All whom Adam the first represented fell and died. And Christ is going to restore and save those whom he represented. So that temptation and victory over Satan was crucial for our salvation, as well as his victory over Satan throughout his whole life. I don't want any of us to go away from this passage thinking, well, you know, Jesus had it pretty good, really. Only 40 days was he tempted. Listen, he was tempted all through his life. Boys and girls, as a little child, Jesus was tempted to disobey his parents and to have an attitude and to lie and to cheat and to steal and to be mean to his brothers and sisters, and he never sinned. As a young teenager, he was tempted to lust. He never lusted. And be sure that after these 40 days of intensified temptation, the rest of his life was characterized by temptation right up until he took his last breath. So having been baptized in order to identify with sinners and having conquered the devil in the wilderness, Jesus was now ready to enter upon his public minister ministry in order to prove who he was, the Son of God, in order to preach what he was going to preach and teach what he was going to teach and live a sinless life and die a vicarious death and redeem a people for his name. And that life and those purposes begins with verse 14 of our text this morning. So let's launch further into Mark's account of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now let me give you a quick overview. This is a, a pretty um, daunting task. We're only preaching 26 sermons on the gospel of Mark. This chapter has 45 verses, and I'm to cover verses 14 through 45. So let me fly over this passage and just show you that it's divided into six parts. Verses 14 and 15, Jesus announces his kingdom, preaches the gospel, and that gospel is announcing 
his kingdom. Verses 16 through 20, Jesus calls his first four disciples. Verses 21 through 28, Jesus demonstrates his authority as a teacher and his authority over the devil. Verses 29 through 34, Jesus demonstrates his authority over disease by healing the sick. And in verses 35 through 39, Jesus prays and then goes to different areas of Galilee to preach the gospel. I'm just going to take a moment because if I don't do this now, I'm certain that I'm going to forget this point because it's really not a part of my message. But I, I just want to point this out to you. you. You heard when Derek read that in verse 35, while it was still dark, Jesus got out of bed, basically, and he went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Our Savior was a man of prayer. I just want to remind you of that. The Son of God, as the God-man, needed to pray. As divine, he was prayed to, but as the God-man, he needed to pray. And prayer was a big part of our Savior's life. He prayed when he was baptized. He prayed before choosing the twelve disciples. He prayed before feeding the five thousand. He prayed after feeding the five thousand. He prayed before asking his disciples a very important question, who, do, who am I? Who do you think that I am? He prayed on the Mount of Transfiguration. He prayed before extending his tender invitation in Matthew 11. He prayed before he taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer. He prayed at the tomb of Lazarus. He prayed for Peter before his denial. He prayed at the Lord's Supper. He prayed the night he instituted the Lord's Supper. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed on the cross. And he prayed after his resurrection. Jesus Christ was a man of prayer. And we who are infinitely less than he is, should be men and women of prayer. That's all I want to say about that because I'm actually giving you an overview. And finally, in verses 40 through 45, Jesus heals a leper. So you see those headlines. Your Bible translation probably has those headlines. Those are the main sections. But what is really happening here in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through the end of the chapter, could be seen this way. In verses 14 and 15, Mark gives us a summary, a kind of overview of Christ's preaching. When he began to preach, where he preached, and what he preached. Let's just notice that. It says, with regard to when, in verse 14, now, after John was arrested, I already told you last week that between verse 13 and verse 14, a year had transpired. And we have a record of what Jesus did during that year, especially in John, the early chapters of John. Jesus spent some time with John. But later, John was arrested. And this ministry that Mark tells us about began after the death of or after the arrest of John. Where? In Galilee. His previous ministry was in Judea, especially in the South Jordan area. And what was his preaching about? Notice, he came proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the kingdom, or the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. His gospel was intimately connected with the announcement that a kingdom had come, and it was the very kingdom that had been prophesied throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. 
And so there's another little time issue here. He didn't just start this after John was arrested, but notice he declares with regard to the kingdom that the time is fulfilled. God is a time God. God is in charge of time. God created time. The Bible speaks of the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. In Ephesians 1.10, the Apostle Paul speaks about the fullness of time. Everything is right on time with God. Your death will be right on time with God. The salvation that those of us who are saved have experienced and experienced was right on time. And in the fullness of time, the kingdom of God came. And when Jesus said it was at hand, He didn't merely mean to say it's almost here. He means it is here. It is at hand. He surely wouldn't do what His predecessor did. John was saying it's about to appear, it's about to be manifested, and Jesus come along and say the same thing. No, Jesus was saying, it is here, the kingdom has come, and in essence, he was saying, I am the king. And I would only have you to notice that Jesus preached the same thing John preached. What did John preach last week? Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. The faith part isn't clear in... Mark chapter 1, but it's, in, it's clear in the rest of the Bible. John preached repentance from sin, repentance toward God, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And so did our Savior. These are the two great themes of preaching, aren't they? Sinners need to turn from their sin in genuine sorrow, not just out of fear of hell, in genuine sorrow for rebelling against such a good and gracious God, and it, with brokenheartedness, Come to God and say, I'm sorry, forgive me, I'm done, I want to be through with this. But they don't just repent, they flee quickly to the Lord Jesus Christ, because repentance doesn't pay for your sins. Jesus pays for our sins. So Jesus preached faith and repentance, or if you like, he preached repentance and faith. But notice, he preached about a kingdom. Now let's let's take a look at this then a little more closely. Let's notice <clears throat> that in the remaining five sections of this chapter, Mark shows us how Jesus proved that the kingdom had actually arrived and that he himself was the king. And I want to take you, first of all, to an Old Testament passage. It's Daniel chapter 2, just ever so briefly. Daniel chapter 2, and we're jumping right into the middle of uh, an interpretation of a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had. And that dream actually included the kingdom that Jesus said had arrived. It included earthly kingdoms as well. And what we learn from this passage and other portions of Scripture is that the kingdom of God is the one kingdom that in a sense conquers all other kingdoms. Because it is God's kingdom. Just notice verse 44. And in the days of those kings, I believe that is a reference to the period of our Lord's appearance on earth. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, 
nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. This is a different kind of a kingdom. This is a divine kingdom. This is a God kingdom. And then he goes on to say, in verse 44, uh, 45, It is cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold. A great God has, been, has made known to the king what shall be after this. This is just one Old Testament prophecy of the kingdom to come. And this is something that... Many of the prophets spoke of this is something that the people of God were looking for. The problem is that the Israelites as a whole were looking for a political kingdom and that's why they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ because they didn't understand the nature of that kingdom. And I want us to understand this before we see it demonstrated. So what, what shall I say about the kingdom of God? This is a huge challenge especially in a sermon that has to cover this much material. I'm just going to say this. You all know that there is a sovereign kingdom of God which rules over the whole universe. In fact, had we stayed in Daniel, I could have taken you just a little further to chapter 4 and showed you what Nebuchadnezzar confessed after his horrible experience of humiliation. When God screws his head on right and opens his understanding, Nebuchadnezzar says, Now I know that God is sovereign and God's kingdom rules over all of the kingdoms of the earth and no one, no one can stop God's hand. You all know about that kingdom. That kingdom has always existed. That's not the kingdom that came when Jesus said, Now know this, that the kingdom of God has arrived. As if God was not sovereign over the world and history and people and nature before then. No, He's always been sovereign over that. That kingdom has always existed. The kingdom that our Savior is referring to is, if you will, a kingdom within a kingdom. That is to say, it is that spiritual rule and reign of God in the hearts and lives of His people which is set up at the point of conversion. The other kingdom has always been sovereign. And it's always been carried out by God's providence. The Puritans raised the question, what are God's works of providence? And the answer is God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. That kingdom has always existed. Jesus is saying... The kingdom prophesied, which has to do with the rule of God in the hearts and the lives of His people, is now coming in a new, in a fresh, in a striking, in a more powerful way, because the King Himself has arrived. And after that King dies on the cross and goes to the right hand of the Father, that king pours out the Holy Spirit in more copious ways than ever before for the advancement of that kingdom. That's the kingdom that the Lord Jesus is talking about. A kingdom that He sets up in the hearts and lives of His people in this world. And it's a real kingdom. 
And some of you listening to me this morning are citizens of it, and some of you aren't. Some of you are in the kingdom of darkness, and some of you have graciously been transformed and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear Son. It is a real kingdom, and it is an advancing kingdom, though in many respects it is invisible. This is the visible manifestation of it. True churches are visible manifestations of the advancement of that kingdom. But many people don't see it and even reject it because it isn't the kind of kingdom that they were looking for and hoping for. And that's why, for the most part, those who heard Jesus rejected Him and said, that's not what we want. Now, we had hopes. You showed supernatural power, and we thought you were going to be the one who by the word of your power would overthrow the Roman government, set us free, and make us dominate over all the nations of the earth. That's not your kingdom. We're not interested in your kingship. But the kingdom that Christ came to establish was this very spiritual kingdom that I speak of. Now that kingdom, he himself likened to a mustard seed. You just turn over, and we'll be coming to this, to chapter 4. And notice with me verses 30 uh, through 32. This is a parable. And by the way, this is the only gospel that records this particular parable. He said, what can, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground, this is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Do you learn anything about the kingdom of God from that parable? Surely, a great deal. It has a very small beginning, it grows gradually, and it becomes gigantic. That is the kingdom that Christ was announcing and said was at hand. So we can say, and this is getting a little bit close to being sort of theological, but just be bold. You've heard this. There is a now aspect of the kingdom, and there is a not yet or a later aspect of the kingdom. And even John the Baptist was probably deeply troubled about this because he said in his preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand, and then the next thing knows, he's sitting in jail. And doubt comes to him, and he sends word to, to Jesus through his disciples and says, are you the one that we are looking for and waiting for or not? What am I doing in jail? I thought you were going to bring judgment. I preached that. I preached that the winnowing fork was in your hand and that you were going to uh, separate the wheat from the chaff and that you were going to burn the chaff. When is it going to happen? And you see, John himself didn't adequately understand what all of us need to understand, that in the kingdom of God there is seed time and harvest, seed time and harvest, seed time and harvest, and in between the two there is gradual growth. And so there's the commingling of the wicked and the good in this kingdom. It's happening now. Jesus taught that in other parables, the parable of the dragnet, the parable of the wheat, the parable of the wheat and tares. And, and so if we, if we don't understand this, then we don't know where we are and what's happening and what's advancing. But if we understand the, this mystery, this previous 
mystery, but now revealed in these parables. If we understand, you see, you know what? I'm a part of that kingdom. I'm a part of that kingdom. I have been born again. I have been given grace to believe in Christ, to trust in Him. He's the King. I belong to something bigger and better than the United States of America. I love my country. But there's a better country to which I belong. I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't look like much now. But it's advancing. And the kingdom which is now for me a kingdom of grace will someday become a kingdom of glory. Literally. That is the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus was announcing. And He was saying, Be on guard. Demons and disease. The kingdom has arrived. And the King has arrived. Now, the rest of the chapter is just Jesus saying, Want to see the proof of it? Want to see it? Watch this. I made a big claim, haven't I? I've said the kingdom has arrived. Now let me show you the truth of that. And I would submit to you that what we have in the rest of the chapter is simply this, the, uh, the evidence that the kingdom had arrived and that Jesus himself was the king. And what is the evidence? It can be seen in four ways. This is my summation of chapter 1. It can be seen in the way he calls disciples... If you're taking notes, this is really simple. It can be seen in the way He calls disciples. It can be seen in the way He teaches truth. It can be seen in the way He casts out demons. And it can be seen in the way He heals diseases. It's King Jesus asserting His sovereign rule in those areas. The way He calls His disciples? Irresistibly. Irresistibly. The way he teaches truth? Authoritatively. The way he casts out demons? Omnipotently. The way he heals diseases? Instantly. He's sovereign. He's sovereign over those domains because he's sovereign over all domains. And so, in essence, Jesus says, I've made a great claim, and now I'm going to prove it. Watch this. Or let's think of Mark saying, watch this. Let me tell you what happened after he declared the arrival of the kingdom. You know what he did? He went up north to Galilee uh, to a little fishing village called Capernaum, which is just sort of on the northwest side of the Lake of Galilee, and he called his first four disciples. You see that in verses 16 and following. Now, the fact of the matter is, Simon and Andrew, the two brothers, and James and John had already come to know Jesus and had spent some time with him. I don't have time to show you that in the Gospel of John. So I don't want you to think this is the first time they ever saw him or heard him. They were attracted to him. In a sense, they wanted to become his followers. But he wasn't ready to make disciples out of them and start, start training them for the apostleship. But when he gets ready, you know what he does? He goes up to, to these men who are fishing, and he just says to Peter and Andrew, he's called Simon here later, Jesus calls him Peter. And he says to them while they're fishing, follow me 
and I will make you become fishers of men. And what's really amazing is verse 18, and immediately they left their nets. That's that's that favorite word of Mark that he uses 42 times in this gospel. That's what makes it fast-paced. Immediately, this is the second time of eight times in chapter 1. Eight times he uses the word immediately. This is the second time. And it says immediately they left their nets and followed him. It wasn't like, uh, well, Lord, this is a huge thing. You're asking us to change vocations. We rather like fishing. We, we love you. We're happy about what you're doing. It'd be a privilege. And we, we probably would like to be your disciples, but could we just think about this? Could we, could we pray about it for a day? No. The second he says, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men, they leave their nets and they follow him. And then he goes a little further down the shore and he finds two other potential disciples in the form of James and John, who were also brothers, and they're in a boat with their father, mending their nets. Their father was Zebedee. And he says the same thing to them. And you know what they do? Again, he uses the word immediately in verse 20. They left their father, Zebedee, in the boat. Now, don't think of them as being cruel to Dad. Dad's doing well. Dad probably uh, loves and respects Jesus as well, maybe even trusts in Him. And he's happy to let his sons become disciples of Jesus. He has hired servants. He's okay. He's doing fairly well as a businessman. But my point, dear people, is you see the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ, first of all, in the way he calls disciples. And that's the way he still calls disciples. Are you a disciple of Jesus? I promise you this, that when Jesus is ready to make a disciple out of any unbelieving sinner, all he has to do is assert his sovereign, omnipotent authority through the gospel, and you will come. And that's the way we need to give our testimonies. I was called by a sovereign God. It isn't all about my will. Yes, my will is involved, but God changed my will. God graciously, irresistibly drew me to Himself. Yes, this is an illustration of irresistible grace. There was something in the command of the Savior. There was something in the summons of the Savior that carried with it divine power. When He said, follow me, those weren't just two words. They were words attended with divine power. And something happened in the minds and the souls and the wills and the hearts of these four men. And they said, yes! So when Jesus says, the kingdom is at hand, and in essence, watch the evidence, this is the first one, the way he calls disciples. And isn't it encouraging that he just called ordinary men? That's beautiful too. I could spend some time on that, but I can't. Not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God chooses the foolish things of this world. Fishermen. Fishermen to be his first disciples and to turn the world upside down. It's a great privilege to be a fisherman of souls. That's what your pastors are. And we don't ever want to get beyond that. There's nothing more glorious. If someone said to any one of us, what is your occupation? We could say, I'm a fisherman. Really? Where do you fish around here? All over the place. There isn't that much water on it. Oh, no, I'm not fishing for those kinds of fish. I'm fishing for the souls of men. And you, dear people, have been called also to be fishers 
of men. In the second place, Jesus demonstrates his sovereignty by the way he teaches truth. And we see this when he goes into a synagogue. So having gathered a portion of his disciples, we find him in verse 21 in the city of Capernaum going in on the Sabbath day to a synagogue and teaching. Now, it may seem strange that he could just suddenly go in there and teach, but that was sort of the nature of synagogues. If the ruler of the synagogue thought you had something worth saying and you could uh, articulate in an understandable way, you would often be permitted to do so. A portion of Scripture was read from the law, a portion of Scripture was read from the prophets, and then normally a rabbi would get up and drone on about things that were... um, Extremely boring. Normally. Um, I want to read for you what one uh, commentator said about the rabbis and what it was like. Drowsy, hair-splitting disputations about nothing and endless casuistry were the staple of the synagogue talk. But. Well, before I read the but, let me read something else about them. They had got so accustomed, the people of Israel, to the droning dreariness and trivial subtleties of the rabbis. But, well, look at the text. Look at verse 22. Jesus is teaching, and it says, They were astonished at his teaching. Why? What astonished them? For he taught them as one who had authority. Key word. Has to do with sovereignty. Has to do with power. He knew what he was talking about. The rabbis quoted and quoted and quoted. They quoted from this scholar and that scholar and the other scholar and they rendered their opinion and often said, well, this is what Rabbi so-and-so has said about it. But when this man stands up at the lectern in the synagogue, he says, You have heard that it has been said. But I say unto you. And with those words, there was a persuasion and a power and a reality in the soul of the hearer. And people said, wow, I have never heard teaching like this. Teaching has come to life. Teaching suddenly becomes practical. Teaching suddenly becomes Crucial! And this one who speaks somehow speaks to my very soul. He teaches not like the scribes, but with authority. Oh, yes. You know why? Because he's the king. He's the king of a kingdom. And he's God. And he doesn't have to quote other people. And he doesn't have to argue. He just asserts. And sometimes he says, truly, truly, I say unto you, but it's I. I say unto you. And so he demonstrates his sovereignty in the way that he teaches. And I just want to ask you before I leave that point. Do you recognize and appreciate that kind of authority? Has he ever spoken to you with that kind of authority? He doesn't have to be down here on earth to do it. He does it still in the same way, through the scriptures and by his spirit. Does he speak to you with authority? If he doesn't, you're surely not a disciple and your eyes have not yet been opened. 
But the third way he demonstrates his sovereignty is the way he casts out demons omnipotently. And we have him doing this, first of all, in the case of an individual, again, in this same synagogue, and then later we see him doing it to groups of people, I'm sure one by one, but to groups, generically. Let me just quickly show you the generic ones. It's down in verse 33, which, by the way, I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but he was at the house of Peter, where Peter's mother-in-law was sick. And I'll comment on her healing in a moment. And after he had uh, performed the miracle that we're about to look at, uh, so many people heard about it so quickly that we're told in verse 33 that the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick. Just chalk that up so that I don't have to come back to that. There's generic healings. He healed many who were sick with various diseases. But here's what I want you to notice. And cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. There's an evidence of sovereignty. Shut up! Although I don't think Jesus had to say it like that. I think he just said, you're not permitted to talk. And power went with that. And they didn't say, well, we'll say what we want to say. Who do you think you are? Oh, they knew who he was. They said that. He had sovereignty over the demons. And then when you go up a little further to chapter 30 or to verse 36, um, Peter finds him after he had gone off to the secret place to pray the next day. And he said, everybody's looking for you. And Jesus says, but we need to move on. There are other people who need the gospel in essence. And then in verse 39 it says, and he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So... Jesus asserts his sovereign authority and proves that the kingdom had come by casting out demons generally. Jesus asserts his sovereignty and demonstrates his authority over demons particularly. And we have the story of it there in verses 23 through 28. Not only is he authoritative in his teaching, but look, look what happens. Verse 23, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. This is a demon-possessed man. Immediately he probably burst into the crowd. He wasn't allowed to be there. Deacons, uh, demons, uh, leprous people, he wasn't leprous, he was demon-possessed. He wasn't allowed to be in there. He just burst himself in there. And maybe there was something in the, in the nature of Christ that was attractive to his humanity, but the moment he comes into the presence of Christ, this unclean spirit cries out and it says, what, are you, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Was it us or I? It's, it's us, but I'm speaking for the us. There were many demons in this man. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, be silent, literally be muzzled, and come out of him. This demon-possessed man was screaming. He was shrieking. He was shouting. And you don't have to shout back if you're the Son of God and the King of the Kingdom. You just say, be quiet. Come out of him. And what happened? The demon makes one more effort to do harm to the poor body that he was possessing. And he causes that person to convulse and cry out with a loud voice, but he comes out. And notice verse 27, they were all amazed. So they question among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with what? Authority! 
kingdom is at hand, says Jesus. Let me prove it. I'll show you the way I call disciples. I'll show you the way I cast out demons. This is the the Savior that we worship this morning. He's sovereign over the realm of evil. And He does it omnipotently. I would only point out before I leave this, see how devils hate their subjects. And I want to say that to you boys and girls who are not Christians, or any adults who are not Christians. You know what? I don't think anybody here is demon-possessed. I doubt that. I do think some people... I think demon possession is a reality. But I do believe this, that if you're not a Christian, you're demon-oppressed, at least in the sense that the devil is your father and he rules you and you are under his control and he is your master and you are his slave. And he means nothing but harm to you. And he will not be satisfied until you join him in hell for all eternity. That's what the devil wants, boys and girls, out of you. He wants to take you to hell. He knows he's going to hell. And his days are numbered, but he wants to take as many people with him as possible. And even when Jesus forces the demons to leave this man, he says, I'm going to do one more thing. I'm going to cause him to convulse and to shriek. And he tries to bring a final harm. The devil hates his subjects. But I also want you to notice how much truth a person can be persuaded of and still hate Christ. Did you see what the demon said to him? He said, I know who you are, Holy One of God. What do you have to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? We know that you're sovereign. We know that you're omnipotent. But we have nothing in common. You're holy. We're wicked. We have nothing to do with each other. Are you going to send us to hell now? You holy one of God. And what's amazing is that the demons saw in Jesus what people didn't see. And the demons in spite of what they saw and believed with all of their hearts. And by the way, this is where faith goes from head to persuasion. Pastor Sam's been teaching on the nature of saving faith in his class and opening up that faith has these elements. There's cognizance, you have to understand something before you can believe it. There's persuasion, you have to be fully convinced that it's true. And there's trust. And I'm saying to you that these demons had more than cognizance. They were fully persuaded that Jesus was God. And they were fully persuaded that He was holy. And they were totally confident that someday He would be their judge and that they would be sent to hell and be destroyed. They totally believed it. And and yet, they didn't fall down and say, Is there any saving mercy for demons? How can we be made right with you, Holy One? What's my point? My point is that you can believe a whole bunch of truth about God. I said you can believe it. In a certain sense, and Pastor Sam has distinguished that as well, you can believe it in a certain sense, but not trust in it and not be saved by it. And those of you who have been well taught at Heritage Baptist Church need to be very careful about putting any confidence in what you know or what you believe unless that has turned you 
to Jesus from sins to rely entirely upon Him as your Savior. The devils have a lot of good theology and a lot of faith. But lastly, I need to just comment on the fact that Jesus demonstrates His sovereignty by the way He heals diseases. And again, I told you a moment ago that He healed um, people individually and He healed people sort of in groups, generically. That is to say, we don't know all the individuals he healed. Perhaps thousands of people. Let me show you the generic. I've already mentioned it. It was at the house of Peter. Verse 34, he healed many who were sick with various diseases. But he also healed people individually. In fact, in this section, beginning with verse 29, going into the house of Peter, Peter's house, um, Peter's mother-in-law was ill with a fever. By the way, what does that say about Peter's marital status? It says he was married. And it says that the first pope had a wife. Okay? Just throwing that in there. That I will not charge for. Let... Let the church teach what it likes about the importance of celibacy. The first pope was married. And he should be married unless you're given that unique and special gift which sets you free from the need of companionship and intimacy for the sake of the gospel. God ordained marriage for everyone. And he goes in the house and they say, Jesus, Peter's mother sick with a fever. Now, I'm not saying she was at the point of death. We normally would think of a fever as sort of a lesser kind of a problem. Don't fevers normally come and go away? So was this really a big miracle? Yeah, the thing that makes it big is that it was merely a fever. And Jesus cares about fevers. He cares about fevers. And he goes into the room where Peter's mother is, and Luke tells us that he leans over her, Luke the doctor. Mark tells us that he takes her by the hand and he picks her up, and the very grasp of her hand, the tenderness of that, the very grasp of her hand is the moment of healing, and he raises her up. The fever is instantly gone. Teaches with authority, casts out demons with omnipotence, heals instantaneously. The fever's gone. And she says, could I go ahead and prepare the meal for you? I'm feeling great. I'm feeling great. And I'm sure she sat down and looked, up, looked upon him with an affection and a faith that we would, uh, we would feel ourselves if that had been our experience. But then later in this chapter, as Derek read for us in verses 40 and following, in a different city, not Capernaum, we're told about a leper who came to him. And I love what he said. He said, if you will, you can make me clean, verse 40. If you will. If you're willing. And there has to be some measure of faith. It doesn't mean that he was prepared to trust Jesus as a Savior. He probably didn't understand the gospel, but he did know that he was a miracle-working person, and he believed that if he wanted to, he could. He had heard enough, perhaps, and he had seen enough. And there's something beautiful about that kind of faith because faith isn't being absolutely persuaded that God's going to do what you want Him to do. Faith is being absolutely persuaded that God can do what you want Him to do if He so chooses. That's the highest level of faith and we need to be submissive to God in, in our faith toward Him. Some have said that, that maybe it was almost a holy argument that He was sort of saying, you know, it's not a matter of, of, uh, 
of your power, God. It's, it's only a matter of your will. Surely you would be willing to heal me of this leprosy since ability is not the question. Is it really questionable that you would desire to heal a leper? Some have suggested that. I think that's pretty speculative. But one thing is for sure. This person knew that Jesus was able. And you know what I love? I think that some of the sweetest words in this whole passage are the first three words of verse 41. Moved with pity. Moved with pity. <laughs> Moved with pity. Jesus didn't always say, okay, here we go, another opportunity to prove that I'm the Son of God. Um, I don't feel anything for this person, but let me just assert my, my uh, sovereignty here. After all, my main purpose is to demonstrate that a kingdom has come, and I'm the king, so yes, I will heal you. No, he looks upon this man with pity. He's a leper. Some, one commentator suggested that Jesus didn't need to hear what came from his lips. All he needed to do was see his lips, and he felt pity. Jesus pities people. And we need to be like Him. He looks upon people with compassion. I said a few weeks ago, when the people were hungry, He said, I feel compassion for these people. They're hungry. Andrew, is there any food? I can't send them away with physical weakness. They'll faint along the way. I love these people. I want to do something for them. We should be like our Savior. He was more than that, understand. I know that. But He wasn't less than that. And we need to be a compassionate, loving people who know how to touch people with a holy touch. And to say, I care about your situation. I want to help you. And what I really want to help you with is the Gospel. And so... Jesus just says, I will. Be clean. But, he's immediately cleansed. He's immediately healed. The leprosy is gone. And Jesus says, now, go to the priest and do what the law requires. You need to be um, cleansed according to the Levitical law. And I really want to see you re-socialize because now you'll be able to live in public again. But you've got to do what's right. Go And please, don't say anything about this. That's sometimes called the messianic secret. Why did Jesus tell people, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody? Because every time he... Well, your answer is in the text. Look at verse 45. He went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. That's why... Not only did it draw such huge crowds, but the drawing of huge crowds raised such animosity and hatred on the part of the scribes and the Pharisees, and Jesus is going to die on time. And in a sense, he's trying to prevent a premature crisis. An interesting question that you can talk about at lunch is, should he have obeyed Jesus or not? Did he sin by going and telling everybody? I have an opinion on that. And for a $5 bill, I'll tell you what it is after the, after the service. What's beautiful, dear people, is the pity and the power of Christ. Now, this is what I've got to say, and I've got to quit. I'm already, this is, this is so challenging. <clears throat> you see what Jesus is doing, though? He's not just showing authority. I want you to catch that. He is demonstrating sovereign authority in his kingdom rule. But I want you to see that he's reversing the effects of the fall. I want you to see that he's coming and in virtue of his atonement soon to be offered and made, he is reversing the effects of the fall. Wherever sin has come and brought its ravages, Jesus comes and can bring his healing. The first Adam failed 
And we became slaves of the devil. And we began to die. And disease entered the universe. And so the two of the greatest problems in the world are the power and influence of Satan over unbelievers and the fact that we're all dying and are frequently sick. And Jesus says, I have the solution to both of those problems because I am the king and I'm sovereign and when I make my atonement, I will purchase finally all that I need to destroy the works of the devil and to reverse the effects of the fall. There is healing in my atonement. And in fact, one of the parallel passages says that he did this so that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet, he heals all of our diseases. And it says right that says that right after he healed all those sick people at the house at the doorstep of, of Peter's house. Now, he only does that, I think, in a sense, as a token and as a temporary in, sort of installment. A kind of an early draft on what we're all going to get. Because he just wants us to know that ultimately healing is in the atonement. So when we are sick, even though we would be foolish to pray that we will live forever in these mortal bodies and that he will never let us die, we can at least say to Jesus, Jesus, if you do heal me, it will have to be in virtue of your atonement. And I pray for a temporary application of that as a kind of foretaste of the day when I will receive a glorified body and there will be no sickness and no disease. You, my Savior, are sovereign. You are the King. And you demonstrate it in the way you call disciples, in the way you, cast out, in the way you teach with authority, in the way you cast out demons, and in the way you heal people. What a King. And do you see here the combination of power and tenderness in Jesus? Isn't that beautiful? This, all of this authority and yet this tenderness in our Savior who looked upon people with pity. There's the Savior that we have to trust in, dear ones. And I commend Him to all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the rest of chapter 1. It reveals so much to us about our Savior. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are the King of a kingdom and that your kingdom is advancing, and that so many of us have been inducted into that kingdom by your grace. And we look upon you as our Redeemer and as our Sovereign. And it, we're so privileged to be a part of the advancement of that kingdom. And we pray that you will help us to love that kingdom more than the kingdoms of this world, so that this week when one of our pastors and one of our brothers goes to get the gospel to parts of the world where the kingdom is not dominant, that that will be our great desire. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being omnipotent, sovereign, and tender. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen.